Um, all right, if we do this timing-wise correctly, this can be the most perfectly timed Sunday school class of all time because we can get through the end of the curse stuff <laughs> into the salvation stuff on this morning when we're ending Advent kind of a little early, I guess, for the Christmas cantata, although my sermon is an Advent sermon, but uh, it's celebrating the birth of Christ, and we're doing that this week. Uh, let's, let's do this, and if I kind of uh, bring you a discussion to a close a little early, it's just out of um, concern for the, the timing, so don't, don't be offended. Uh, we are now on question 6-7. All right, so let's read this together. Question 67. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. There are two scriptures given there, Ephesians 5-6 and Psalm 11-6. Let's have one of you look up Ephesians 5-5 and 6. Uh, one of you look up Galatians 3.10. Do we need to even look up Romans 6.23, or does one of you have that committed to memory? No, but I happen to open up to Romans. <clears throat> Come on, Calvin, Romans 6.23. Out of Oh, you're about to say 3.23, I think. 6.23 is for the wages of sin is death. All right, we're going to stop with 623A. No life yet. No life yet. It's like Good Friday. Only we're going to get to the life late in like 45 minutes. Oh, you might be gone, Margaret. We'll save you some, believe me. <laughs> no, choir starts at 10. Because we have a cantata today. Um, all right, so did anyone get Galatians 310? I got it. All right, let's hear it. Um... For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Whoa! All right. How do you really feel, Lord? What's that? Good old Paul. Well, Paul, good old Paul quoting the Old Testament. Um, Ephesians 5, 5, and 6. Somebody have that one? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All right, and then again, Romans 6.23a says the for wages, of sin is death. wages of sin is death. Now, you can't. Good. No, I can't. That's the best part. <laughs> That's the next question. Again, I think, I, I think that we have to keep ourselves from rushing ahead every time out of uh, the thought of why the gift of God is necessary and, and what it saves us from, which is the wrath of God, according to Scripture. And that's something that's not popular even in uh, otherwise solid churches, you know, to talk about the fact that God has wrath against sin, um, the notion of salvation being our deliverance from that righteous, perfect wrath uh, is swept under the rug a lot of the time in favor of other ways of sort of picturing salvation as 
you know, a, a leg up or deliverance from my own limiting of my potential or something. Um, the great modern hymn, In Christ Alone, uh, there was a little kerfuff a few years ago when the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to incorporate it into one of their new hymnals, but they did not want the line, uh, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. To them, that was just too yucky. They wanted to change it to something a little bit softer, and uh, they had to get the permission of Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townsend, and they were like, hard pass. That's the gospel that you want to write out of our hymn. Uh, and it, I thought it was a, a good thing that it happened so publicly because it kind of centered that discussion again on what is it that, that the gospel is, you know, why is it good news? And can there be that kind of good news before really, really, really bad news? And the answer is no. I mean, if you walk around Lansing with a bottle of pills and tell everyone you come across, hey, I have the cure here for dengue fever or something. And they say, well, I don't have that, so, you know, good for you. Everyone would just think you were weird, and, and you, no one would want your pills. You sit down in a doctor's office and are told you have this disease. It's fatal, but great news, there is a cure. Take two of these. Suddenly, it's received differently. The sentence of death is what makes the gift of life have any impact. The, the bad news is why the good news is good news. Uh, and you know, a few years ago, I was probably almost 10 years ago now, if not more, there was another one of these big kind of, um, can God you know, really be good if he has wrath, if these pictures of, of wrath throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, uh, are to be taken seriously and not as some kind of, I don't know, beat poetry or something. Um, the book Love Wins by Rob Bell made a big splash and, um, one rebuttal that was written was written by my mentor, Michael Whitmer, and he had a great chapter about how we don't want to pass over the notion of wrath, but in some churches, we make the mistake of emphasizing that. Have you ever been to those churches where that's the main thing? Fire and brimstone, real fundamentalist kind of where, where you go in and you're like, okay, when I leave here, I'm going to feel like crap. And... You leave going, well, is there any good news for a sinner like me? That is at least as bad a, a crime against the gospel, probably far more. And in his rebuttal of, of that book, I, he, he gives us, I think, the best gift uh, in this phraseology. I've never heard it before, and it hasn't really caught on since. But he says, God has wrath, but God is love. So ultimately, yes, of course, love wins. In fact, that, that phrase comes from uh, a, a Good Friday sermon that Rob Bell did when he was still in Grand Rapids or Grandville or where it was. Um, and that's where all the stickers started showing up everywhere that said love wins. It was just called the cross, colon, love wins. And it was, he didn't come with anger and armies and violence and overcome the world. He came in love, died on a cross, and won, won the battle. Uh, and I think we don't want to lose sight of that, that it was not wrath that brought Jesus. It was love that brought Jesus to us. And if you find yourself, even here, coming to a church where week after week you're like, wow, I'm getting banged with the law and I'm being told just how very bad I am. And I leave here going, ugh, broken, instead of uh, being broken with the law, yes, 
and then given life with the gospel and absolved of your sins uh, by the, the proclamations of Scripture, it may be time to, I don't know, intervention or worst case scenario, uh, vamoose. Uh, it's not something that we want to get out of whack in either direction. Erasing the wrath or making the wrath the star of the show. Uh, it's, it's not how God operated. He, he has wrath against sin. He is love. Uh, and I'm not being cute with that. There are three anarthrous sayings of God. That means without a article. Not God is a light, but God is light. Not even God is the light. God is light. God is spirit and God is love. St. John gives us all three of those. Never God is wrath. Sometimes God is angry, but that is a description of a state, not a character attribute. Uh, and if a church makes you think that one of God's attributes is that he's angry, that's not the God we serve. Um, let's look at Revelation 6, 14 through 17. I'll just read it. Um, I don't think we can separate the love from the wrath without uh, doing violence to both of them. This is uh, a description of the end. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So a description of Christ coming back, at which time, according to this same book of the Bible, every tear is wiped away and all is made new, includes this description of wrath and many others. And there are many people who say, well, if God could come and just remove evil from the world, why wouldn't he just do it now? You know, why let it kind of continue? Not recognizing that that would mean, most people asking that question, I mean, removing them from the world. Right? It would mean coming in judgment. And so God's tarrying, his waiting and holding wide the door of salvation, saying, come all who will, is, is his grace. Because when he comes again, he will be coming in judgment. And, you know, you sometimes will hear, but well, hold on, the Bible, the scriptures, the New Testament especially, the Gospels, they present Jesus, um, you know, not as a, a lion coming to destroy, but as a lamb. And you go, hold on, he's the lion of Judah too. Uh, the lion and the lamb. But even if we just focus on the lamb, there in Revelation 6, we have reference to the wrath of the lamb. And the very notion of lamb imagery comes from... Sacrifice. Yeah. The sacrifice, the Old Testament, where the lamb, his, his throat is cut and the blood spilled. And why? Because God being a righteous God cannot have sin in his presence. And so uh, blood... Offering, which foreshadows then the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, must be made. So even the, the lamb imagery, my first Bible, I still have it. It was an NIV children's Bible, uh, NIRV they call it now. Um, and it had the classic Jesus holding the lamb on the cover. It's one of my favorite. I think about that. that it's a pastel drawing. I think about it every once in a while. It just makes me very happy. Uh, it's very serene, but we don't want to miss the fact that the lamb, this beautiful, helpless little thing being slain, is for us a picture of the seriousness of our sin and the horrid effects of our sin. Some, though, might ask the question, 
if I can lay aside my wrath and forgive people without demanding that they bleed or even pay me something or make it right, why can't God do that? I mean, isn't God greater than me? If somebody sins against me, I can just be like, you know what, forget it. Well, let's just forget it happened. If I can do that, why can't God? Is, there, is that a good question? Well, I think it's a good question, but you're not perfectly holy, so you don't have to require that perfect people be perfectly holy in your presence. Okay. And it's also expecting God to act like us rather than us trying to, um, well, not just trying, but being enabled to be more like him. Right, yeah, it's called natural theology. The notion that if I take myself and ratchet it up to the nth degree, that will be what God is. It's a tendency we have, but it's a wicked tendency that we have rooted in the flesh. So, you know, you might hear someone say, well, I would never do that. I can't imagine God would if I wouldn't. Well, okay, uh, that's... The fact that you wouldn't do it in any given situation is no indicator of whether or not God would. Um, and also, what about the idea that if you can just, if I can just forgive someone's debt, for example, I don't demand that they pay it. Like examples of parables in the, in the scriptures. Why can't God just forgive the debt instead of demanding that someone pay it? Yeah. Well, even if you forgave the debt, you're paying it. <laughs> right. Yeah, people don't remember. If, even if someone declares bankruptcy, someone. someone's paying it. Someone's eating that debt. So if the king that's owed the 20 million in the parable, we remember where the guy gets forgiven and he goes and he chokes the guy for like 20 bucks. The king effectively has paid it. It's been paid. So the sin debt that we've inherited and that we've built and built and built by our continued sin will be paid either by us, the wages, paying the wages of sin, our own death, eternal death, or by Christ on the cross. There, there can be no, uh, we're, we're talking about a, a closed system here where you can't just make it so big that you're like, ah, you know what? We'll forgive that, that you know, student loans being forgiven and stuff. And you go, okay, that's beautiful. Gotta remember someone's paying them. If you spread it out enough, no one's going, ouch, that smarts. But any debt that's forgiven, payment has been made either by the debtor or the creditor. And when we speak of the wrath of God, I think we also need to remember in terms of not starting with us and, and ratcheting it up to get what God is about, but rather starting with God's self-revelation. We're not talking about passion. We're not talking about a uh, fleshly wrath. Uh, somebody open up uh, Malachi 3.6. I'm going to be preaching from Malachi 3 this morning. How interesting. This is not the last time that's going to happen this morning. I'm telling you, it's perfect timing. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3.6, one of many places where you read about the immutability of God. He doesn't change. He doesn't flash up in anger. In fact, we read he is slow to anger, overflowing with grace and mercy. His anger is not like our anger. I hold it in and then I'm just like, ah, I'm so mad. Or, you know, you, you just kind of follow the chemicals through your brain. James Fisher says, God's wrath is the most pure and undisturbed act of his will, which produces most dreadful effects against the sinner. Namely, all the miseries of this life, death itself, and the pains of hell forever. John Owen says, the wrath of God consists in these things. 
in diverse things. First, in the guilt of death, temporal and eternal. Secondly, the loss of the grace and favor of God. Thirdly, guilt and horror of conscience, despair and anguish here, with, fourthly, eternal damnation hereafter. Start laying these things out, and uh, yeah, the wrath of God is, is not funny. It's not, uh, you know, something to be talked about lightly. Uh, the very nature of sin is the very opposite of God's holy nature. So it's almost like, you know, rubbing your feet on a rug and then touching a doorknob. You did that. That's why you got zapped. You know, to, to sin is to call down God's wrath and curse intentionally. It's like putting up a lightning rod and, and then being surprised when lightning strikes it. The least sin, this is not me, this is a quote from, I think, Alexander White, uh, in which we commit in deed or word or thought is death without repentance. So, talking about if there were greater or lesser sins last time, uh, I don't think we got to the notion, the Roman Catholic notion of venial sins and mortal sins, how they would separate them into categories. Venial sins are sins you can commit, and even if you haven't confessed it and you die, it's not going to damn your soul. Mortal sins are so bad that if you have one on your conscience at your death, that's, that's all she wrote. We can't have venial sins. They're all mortal sins, according to God's word. Uh, there is, I mean, a venial sin I could atone for with some time in purgatory, with some, some work and some suffering. But Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Can't happen. That means that God's love and God's wrath come together at the cross, and that's the only place any sin can be truly forgiven. Could someone look up 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19? And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Gosh, that's good news. Yeah, I guess I had to read that. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll let Margaret read 6, uh, 623b as well now. Uh, most evangelicals, I think, do believe in mortal and venial sins implicitly. I think that's just kind of built into our... I mean, a, a small sin won't move them to repentance like a big one will. Uh, and I think that's a human tendency. It's a, a Pelagian tendency. Uh, and it's something that itself we need to uh, be repenting of. It's, it's a belief in a partial, not total depravity uh, where I can kind of handle some of this stuff. Don't um, most people consider sin value in the amount of consequences that come from it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think I have that tendency too. If I can get away with it nobody found out I did it, I'm not going to go, well, I had that uncharitable thought, kept it to myself successfully, and now I'm broken over it the way that I would be if I had spoken it and people heard me and started to have blowback in my life, which is wrong. I, it should affect me equally either way. Second Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm already skipping ahead to the grace stuff because how can you stop? So 
for our sake, the one who knew no sin, the only one, Jesus, became sin so that we could become his righteousness. This is what we call the great exchange. It's, it's the best deal we could ever get. It's the worst deal God could ever get. And he happily got it. I think it's very fascinating that that verse says, for our sake, he did this. And in our communion confession, which comes from the, the Book of Common Prayer, more or less, uh, we pray with many, many, many Christians of different traditions and over the centuries, we deserve your eternal, everlasting, and present punishment for the sake of your Son. Jesus, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us. And, and, and so we're praying, Lord, forgive us for Jesus' sake, and Jesus came here for our sake. It's, it's a really beautiful kind of web we've got going here. And this exchange of sin for righteousness is the best news there could ever be. I, I mentioned last week that um, it takes a long time to get to this point in, in this uh, variation of the Westminster Catechism. And you start with it pretty much right away in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only hope in life and in death? Uh, anybody know that one? My only hope in life and in death is that I belong not to myself, but body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I think I got that a little bit wrong. It's not my catechism, but I love that question and that answer. And I think it's just a beautiful way to start it. But I think if you commit to this one, it's more beautiful because it brings you through the darkness and, and narrative, through the scriptures, through the law, into your own depravity, lost state, and damnation, and then to the foot of the cross, and says, uh, here, let's get some hope. Question 68. How may we escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting alone to his blood and righteousness. This faith is attended by repentance for the past and leads to holiness in the future. Old-timey sermon illustration. A pious young physician, says one, whose father I knew, and of whose excellent character I had often heard, called on me one day, and after friendly salutations and expressions of Christian affection, said, Do you know, sir, how much I am indebted to you for giving me a tract many years ago? I told him I had no knowledge of ever presenting him with one, but recollecting that his father formerly kept a turnpike gate, and that often when I stopped to pay my toll, I used to give tracts to the children who were playing about the door, it occurred to me as possible that on some of these occasions, he had been among those children. When I was a boy, said he, you gave me a tract as you were riding by my father's house, and the first words that caught my eyes were, stop, poor sinner, stop and think. I was much affected with the whole hymn, beginning with these words, and committed it to memory. Five years ago, while a member of a university, in a time of universal attention to religion, I was present at a meeting for prayer and other devotional exercises when they commenced singing hymns. Stop, poor sinner, stop and think. My early impressions were all instantly revived. I saw that I was ruined by sin, that an eternity of woe was before me, and I found no peace till I looked to the Savior crucified for me, and, as I hope, by true repentance and faith in his blood, gave myself to him to be his forever. The youth is now an active, godly, praying physician himself. Wow. 
that sounds like pretty well every story of salvation um, at, at the, the core of it. I think a Spurgeon coming in out of the rain, going into the church he didn't intend to go to, where like a deacon was preaching because it was his week and he was bad at preaching, but the message was still this gospel message. Turn from your sin, there's grace being offered. And holding on to that grace then brings new life and salvation. Uh, Alexander White, in his commentary on the Catechism, writes this, A new section of the Catechism commences with this question. The last answer has stopped every mouth and made all the world guilty before God, much as the 19th answer had shut up the human race to God's wrath and curse. And just as answer 20 immediately began to introduce the covenant of grace and made mention of a redeemer, so here, answer 85 sets before the individual sinner what God now requires of him, that he may escape the wrath and curse due to him for sin. And it is here pointed out that God requires of us three things. First, faith in Jesus Christ. Second, repentance unto life. And third, the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of of redemption. And don't be thrown by the difference in numbers. It's slightly different between the London Baptist and the Westminster, but it's, it's the same question. So a new section now. Uh, you, you come to the bottom and suddenly you are able to see up into the light. Here, I think the question has to be asked about the way the question is framed. In the larger catechism, it even says, what, do, what, what doth God require of us? Here it says, how may we escape? But the answer is, we must, and then it lists the things that we must do. And yet, coming from a kind of reformed Calvinistic point of view and coming from a God's sovereignty and man's depravity understanding, is there anything that we can do ourselves that can lead to our salvation? believe in Jesus Christ. That's the answer given right throughout the New Testament. Why is it then that, for example, when you hear people preach on Micah 6, 8, the Micah mandate, uh, what does God require of you, O man, but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. If it's presented as if that were the way to follow Jesus and find salvation, you've been led astray. That's just more of the law. That's another boiling down of the law. But when you get to the New Testament and someone says, what must I do to be saved? You don't have people giving this like sly Calvinist, well, there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is sin more and more. No, you're told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe and be baptized. Believe, repent and believe. All these things that uh, here are, are laid out. Acts 16, 30 to 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the Philippian jailer. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I don't know. If you believe what Jesus said, then our eternal life comes ultimately uh, from God through our believing. I say that because... Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of God or not of works. Uh, it's not of yourself, but the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And it gives us then this notion of by grace through faith. What we need to, it, it, it stinks to go right from like, awesome, yes, salvation is free, to subdividing things into 
parts of speech and, and participial phrases, but uh, that's what we have to do here, I think, if we truly want to understand the answer given to this question. That's uh, not our faith, our believing, our repenting. Is not the meritorious cause of our salvation. Meaning the merit, the, the power, the wealth to counteract the debt does not come from our faith. The power of our faith doesn't erase all of this stuff. That, that you could even get the world, I think, to grab onto. Just believe, believe, and then you, okay, believe in what? doesn't matter. The faith is where the power is, the belief. Believe in yourself, whatever. You know, believe in, even, even like a 12-step program will have the notion you have to acknowledge a higher power, but the higher power could still just be something inside of you. Uh, they'll let that one slide, uh, even though it doesn't make sense when you start reading the rest of the documentation. It's got to be a higher power outside of yourself. No, it's very clear the reason that the object of faith is all important is because your faith is not the meritorious cause of your salvation. It is, yeah, right? Yeah, if, if my faith is the gospel, as a lot of people try to make it, you know, when they share their story or whatever, oof, you're in trouble. My faith can't save you or me apart from just being the appointed means, meaning the conveying and improving means to an end of God's grace and the evidence of God's grace. So our faith, our repentance, our good works are not the procuring cause of our escaping God's wrath. It's not what gains it for us. It's the path by which God has ordained our receiving grace. And our faith itself is a gift of God and therefore a grace, an undeserved uh, gift. So faith is less a work, right? When you're granted faith and you exercise it, you haven't done something. You don't go, oh, wow, that was, oh, whew, that was good of me. You go, oh, wow, God opened my eyes. That was, that was all him. And then you re re return glory to him and praise to him. Repentance, however, is a work. It's a work of God. It's a work that we get to take part in. Initial repentance, hating your sin, rejecting your sin. I do love um, a lot of the uh, baptismal litanies. I find it a little ironic that, that it's often the parents who are asked to reject the devil and all of his wiles and all of his ways and all of his schemes uh, on behalf of the one being baptized. I think that we maybe should think about incorporating that into our believer's baptism because this is a grace that is tied to uh, our initial faith, our being born again as well. It's a work of God and a work of ourselves. Uh, what, is, what does repentance mean? There's, there's uh, the Old Testament shuv. Good work, dude. Hebrew from Aaron. Shuv meaning to U-turn, basically. Turn or return. Go back. So it's a change of direction. And then in the Greek, metanoia meaning a change of mind. So your renewing of your mind. So your mind is now changed. Your direction is changed. Those two things, I think, are inseparably tied together. You can change direction by an act of will or as an act of theater for others, like the Pharisees would tend to do, or as some people, you know, you might get saved because that Christian girl won't date you if you don't. And so you change direction and stop cursing and, you know. But... Unless there is the 
change of heart, the new heart, the change of mind, the mind being renewed, then it's not an evidence of God's having given us grace and granted us faith. But even repentance, that initial repentance, that initial abhorring of sin and turning away from it, is a grace. Do you remember what they said when word came back um, from Samaria about all those believing, and they rejoiced that even the Gentiles had been granted repentance. They didn't dig it up deep in their, you know, cockles of their heart or find it from willpower. It was granted to them by God. And so it's something that we can thank him for. And, and you know, when you start thinking about Ephesians 2, and you start thinking about the idea of us becoming more godly without becoming more prideful, you have to have this view of it. As you see sanctification working out in your life and you don't say, oh, wow, I'm a great Christian because now you've just taken 10 steps back into pride. You say, God, you've granted me this ability. It is just undeserved. I think that's the key to the, the, the reason people go to the Fire and Roadstone Church, even though it would make you feel terrible each week if you were somebody who was convicted of your sins is that the, the people who like that church are the ones who feel like they're the ones who've done this. Like, I'm a good mm. person. I'm, I don't have a problem with this. Right. Sort of well, thing. that's why I think... Otherwise, why would people keep going there? Well, there, I don't know. Why did, why did Harry keep bringing John the Baptist out to tell him he's going to hell? There's something, there's something perverse in us that sometimes feels like hearing... The rebuke is doing penance, I think, sometimes. I think that can be a part of it. And I've gone to some of these churches when I was in Grand Rapids at, at, at Bible College before I wound up where I did. Uh, but I think also, that's you're right, that's one reason why in that sort of church, but also everywhere, in all of our hearts as Christians, we tend to go, here's the big sin. Or here are the, the four or five sins that God really hates and gosh, wouldn't you know it, those are four or five sins that don't even really tempt me. So it allows me to group together a bunch of people, point at them and go, see how far off base they are? And by contrast, how righteous and perfect we are. And in its most ugly form, it's, you know, this Baptist church that goes around with signs. God hates these people. He loves us because we're not those people. I mean, they've never met Jesus. It's horribly sad. They need, to, they need to read this catechism. They need to read the scriptures and they need to understand that the, the tendency to focus on God's wrath against others couldn't more firmly place them in the category of Pharisees or, gosh, anybody in the, in the scriptures that is kind of a bad example. Uh, and, and we all have that tendency. I mean, it, ironically... I could have the tendency to point at them and say, well, at least we're not like that, missing the, the message of God's grace. Uh, isn't it wonderful that we do get it? But a lot of times, I don't. You know, out of the end, I, I look back at my, my day and go, ooh, I really didn't live this in light of the fact that any righteousness inside of me is not native to me. It's, it's from God. And therefore, when I look at other people, I can't have that judgmental spirit. I can't have that... Um, holier-than-thou, looking-down-on-them perspective. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Let's look up one more text. Um, Zechariah 12, 10. 
And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's, I'm not going to say anything about that. Wonderful. I don't know how you read that and, don't, and then don't read the Gospels and go, oh, everything predicted came to pass. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he, he, he grants even the mourning of those who then look back at him and you know, crucified him and gives them the sorrow for it, the godly sorrow, not the worldly sorrow, the, the sorrow for having broken God's heart, not the sorrow for outward consequences. And then even those who nailed the nails through his hands, the guy who pierces his side says, surely this is the son of God. I don't think we can know whether the tradition that he came to faith and was a pillar of the church has any truth to it or not, but sure wouldn't surprise me. Seems to be how Jesus works. Those who hate him and berate him and those today, like the guy who called me a couple days ago and pretended he had a spiritual crisis and really just wanted to mock Christianity and scream obscenities at me and hang up on me. If he calls back two months from now and says, I'm sorry, in the midst of doing all that, I realized that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to go, yeah, sounds about right. That sounds kind of like the guys that, that uh, God gets a hold of and, and uh, uses. Uh, all of this stuff is a gift. Even the stuff that is a work that we get to cooperate with in the, in the process of sanctification, it's granted to you. And it's a gift that you get to take part in it and partner with God in it. Um, you know what? I'm just going to read a one more question from uh, the catechism on the catechism before we close. Question 11. What would be the consequence of making our faith, repentance, and good works the procuring cause of our escaping the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin? So if we were to say the thing that gets us salvation is my faith, my repentance, my good works, what would be the consequence of that? And the answer is, this would be setting aside the satisfaction of Christ and making a savior of our duties than which nothing could nail us more efficiently down under the curse. And then quotes again, Galatians 3.10, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now we have this notion of past, present, and future built into the answer, which I think is all kinds of brilliant. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to our sins, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting alone to his blood and righteousness. This faith is attended by repentance for the past and leads to holiness in the future. This past, present, future thing, you might think kind of confuses our justification, sanctification, glorification kind of thing, but I think they fit together nicely. Uh, I think it kind of builds on, uh, the, it, like uh, when some of those transformers would be a car or a robot, but then one would turn to an arm and one a leg and you could put them together. You know what I'm talking about, Sean. I mean, you were like 30 when those came out, but you know what I'm talking about. Is it correct to say that our faith, love, holy living, and repentance are part of our salvation? Meaning they're essential to salvation. Like if you don't have all of these parts, like if you don't have all those robots, you don't have the full guy. Um, or is there better language to use? Is there a problem with suggesting that my 
holy life is part of my salvation. It should be a result of your salvation. Okay. You, you know, trying to live more holy, trying to follow Christ, but I don't know that it's a part of your salvation. Not to get too cute with it, but if I said, is it right to say that the end result of having a loaf of bread is part of the baking process? Like, can the end result, can the result also be part of it without which you haven't really been baking bread? No, I don't know that we use the word part that way very much anymore. Like, you think of it as being, like, the parts of baking bread would be, like, the ingredients. You know, like, and if you leave one out, your bread's not going to be correct. Okay. Right. Is a holy life an ingredient of salvation? Speaking in broad terms, salvation... Uh, not just justification. We often use salvation as shorthand for justification. We only mean our being, being declared righteous. Can we say it the other way? Salvation is an ingredient to holy living? No, because that... Ooh. I, I think holy living is a residue of salvation. It's a result of salvation. Not... You're, you're all being careful in the right way. <laughs> Because being in the Reformation tradition, you don't want to put any part of salvation in our hands. What if I said that, that Westminster, and I think also the, the Baptist tradition, would, would answer this, yes. They're not conditions of salvation, but these things are salvation itself. That when we talk about, okay. I have been saved, that part was, you know, none of my good works were involved in that. I brought to the table a lot of sin and good works that were a pile of, what's the Greek word, everybody? Scubala. Scubala. Present, my good works. I am being saved now. You are being saved now. You're being uh, saved through the, the sanctification throughout your life. Without that, if there's no sanctification, there's no fruit, there's no salvation. And then we will be, the future is that we, we will be Glorified, We will be ultimately saved and saved not just from the uh, power of sin, but the actual presence of sin in our lives altogether. So if you stop doing the sanctification part of your salvation, you've lost it. <laughs> well, no, we're saying that if there is not sanctification, you never had it. There is no salvation. Now, does that mean that a Christian can't backslide? Certainly not. We have every indicator. Um, you know, it's, look at Peter. He's, he's the ultimate, he's the patron saint of backsliders. I don't know if that's technically true or not in, in those traditions, but it should be if it's not. Uh, because, yeah, he's the leader. You're like, if this, this one guy had better be able to keep it together and not go one step forward, 150 steps back. But he does it, and then Jesus takes him aside, restores him. Do you love me? And doesn't say, I think this is the most important part about that interaction. He doesn't say, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then why'd you do that? Which would be my question. 100%. Then why did you say you didn't even know me? And I'd probably ask it in different ways a number of times. But Jesus just says, okay, then tend my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And points him forward to holy living in the future. And that's because he is overflowing with and never running out of grace and mercy. It's his property always to show mercy 
and the bad news of the curse is dwarfed and really slowly being erased by, and ultimately will be completely erased by, the good news of the gospel.